O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back and uh, welcome on this frosty morning. I'm delighted to see as many people here today as are here, given the circumstances and the weather. Uh, we are beginning a new study today. We finished up our study on Anglicanism and we are going to go back uh, to the scriptures today and we're going to begin a study of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. Uh, let me encourage you, if you're not in the habit of doing so, of bringing your Bibles with you uh, to this class. You'll be blessed by that. Uh, there's no way to really study uh, to, as the old colic says, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest if you don't have it in front of you. So those of you who are on your phones, as I've said before, I'm going to assume <laughs> that you are not on... YouTube or eBay or anything like that, but you are in fact taking a look at the scriptures because it's there on your app. But otherwise, I would encourage you to go ahead and bring a Bible with you. I'm going to be teaching out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. Some of you may prefer another version, whether it's the King James and the New International Version or the RSV. All of those translations are perfectly fine. I'm just operating out of the English Standard Version, which is a, a fairly modern translation when I say modern, it really retains the beauty of the language of the Revised Standard Version, um, but it's based upon the most recent ancient manuscript. So it's a good translation and you'll be blessed. But whatever you want to use, that's fine, but let me encourage you to go ahead and bring your Bibles. I'm well aware of the fact that Anglicans, having been one for so long, that Anglicans are not always in the habit of bringing their Bibles to church, but let me encourage you to do so. I think you'll be blessed by it. But if you want to, you can go ahead and open now to the Gospel of John, uh, the fourth Gospel. And we'll go ahead and begin with this study of an extraordinary book. In his second letter to Timothy, the last letter that Paul wrote, uh, he wrote these words. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and following. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, Paul is basically telling Timothy that the Scriptures are a blessing to him. And they're not just a blessing. The old translation, the King James Version, said all Scripture is inspired. That's not a bad translation, but Paul actually is more emphatic than that. Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God. The Greek there is theopneustos. Theo, which is God. Panousto, or pneuma, is the word from which we get pneumonia. Literally, breathed out from God. So it's not a question of just being inspired. I think we would all agree that William Shakespeare was inspired. But this is something on an altogether different level. And Paul is saying that is true, not just of some portions of the Scripture, but of all Scripture. It is the Word of God. And we at least give lip service to that every single Sunday when we have a reading in church. Whether that reading comes from the Old Testament, something, for example, from the book of Exodus or from the prophet Isaiah, or whether it comes from the New Testament, from the Apostle Paul or from Peter, 
We don't get to the end of the lesson and say a reading from Isaiah or a reading from Exodus or a reading from Peter or a reading from Paul. We say the word of the Lord and the people respond, thanks be to God. We're at least giving lip service to the idea that God the Holy Spirit so superintended the process that what has come down to us, even though it is in human words, is nevertheless God's word. And we are indeed to read it, mark it, learn it, and inwardly digest it. And yet there's no denying the fact there's no denying the fact that there are some sections of Scripture, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they are more inspired than other sections of Scripture, but I would certainly say that there are some sections of Scripture that have been a greater blessing over the history of the church than others. And there's no denying the fact that one of those that has had a profound impact on the history of the world and on many countless lives is this fourth gospel, the gospel of of John. And that's one of the reasons why we are going to take a look at it today. We're going to take a look at it today and for the foreseeable future, I don't mind telling you. It's going to take us some time to get through the Gospel of John, and I thought about whether or not we should do it. I'll be honest with you, there are certain books of the Bible that I just feel the need to teach on over the course of my ministry. Um, I think the book of Acts is very helpful, and I've already taught on Acts here at St. Philip's. One of the reasons for that is that Acts is a history of the early church. And it's not just a history. I think really it is a blueprint for how we should do ministry today. Uh, the world in which the Apostle Paul and his companions worked and moved in that first century Greco-Roman society, it's very similar, believe it or not, to our 21st century post-enlightenment Western society. And uh, Paul had to take the gospel to that unbelieving and skeptical world, and we are called to do the same thing. And if we follow Paul's pattern, I think we can be successful in doing that, or at least more successful than we have been heretofore. So I think the book of Acts is a very important book. The book of Genesis obviously is important. It's the first book of the Bible. It's foundational. It helps us to understand why the gospel is necessary in the first place. Certainly the epistle to the Romans is a book that needs to be taught, and I'm teaching that right now on Thursdays. Um, that is the greatest and weightiest of all of Paul's letters, and many, many famous people have been converted through a reading of the epistle to the Romans. People like Augustine and Martin Luther and um, many others have been deeply impacted by a reading of Romans. But the same is also true of the Gospel of John. Martin Luther, since I've already mentioned him, described this as the unique, tender, genuine, and chief gospel. The unique, tender, genuine, and chief gospel. He went on to say that if some tyrant should succeed in destroying all of the Holy Scriptures and only a copy of Paul's epistle to the Romans and the gospel of John remain, he said Christianity would be saved. Now that's something extraordinary if you think about it. If, if all the Scriptures were to be destroyed, aside from what Paul says there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel John were to survive, Christianity would be saved. Uh, Luther had a great love for this book. He would spend many years teaching on it from his pulpit there in Wittenberg. And there's no denying the fact that of all the scriptures, probably those passages from the New Testament that we are most familiar with, even if you don't have a, a, a deep working knowledge of the scriptures, the passages that you are probably most familiar with from the Bible come from the gospel of John. For example, that most famous of all the passages in the New Testament, the one you used to see even at Super Bowls, they would hang it out over a towel 
John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That comes from the Gospel of John. Not from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Or you think about John chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Man does not live by bread alone. Ever heard that expression? John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. We always imagine God is a shepherd, don't we? And that comes from the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, and it comes from this, where he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Have you ever been to a funeral service in an Anglican church? The opening words are from John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he shall die, yet shall he live. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, you know those words. You're familiar with them. John chapter 15, I'm the true vine. John chapter 14, verse 6, very familiar one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And of course, earlier in that same 14th chapter of John, those very comforting words also heard frequently at funerals, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, or as one of my older parishioners used to like to say, many mansions. Uh, she said when she died, she did not want that modern translation about rooms. She said, I have been looking forward to a mansion my entire life, and I intend to get one, one way or the other. So we read the King James Version when she passed on to glory, and I'm sure she's got a mansion up there. But let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. These are all passages that come out of the Gospel of John. And as I said, they are the most familiar passages to us from the Bible and certainly from the New Testament. So you can understand why Luther saw this as a tender, genuine, and chief gospel. It is unique. You're all aware of the fact that there are actually four gospels in the New Testament. They all purport to do the same thing. They are all there basically as biographies tell the story of the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the Gospels are there to do. It's one of the reasons why when we have the Gospel reading, it's not to say that the, the first lesson, the epistle lesson or the Old Testament lesson is not divinely inspired or God-breathed, but we stand for the Gospel, don't we? Why do we do that at a Eucharist? We stand for the Gospel. Now, we're not going to do that at the next service because it's morning prayer. But we do do it at the Eucharist. Why? Because it is the story of the Lord's life. That's what this is. We, this is holy ground on which we stand. This is the story of our Lord, our Savior, the Son of God. But while there are four Gospels, there's no denying the fact that John is unique. Not only in terms of its impact over the centuries on people's lives and on the church in general, but it's also unique when compared to the other three. It's, it's unique. Now, somebody might ask, why do you need four separate Gospels to begin with? Well, you might ask the same question about a biography of any great historical figure. 
name any historical figure, whether it be Napoleon or George Washington, whoever it may be, there are multiple biographies of these people. In American history, the, the American that is written about more than any other is who? Abraham Lincoln. Been written about more than any other American. Literally thousands of books. And you ask yourself, why do we need another book about Lincoln? It's a multifaceted life. And certainly that is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. So each of the Gospels is telling the story of Jesus. They each have a slightly different focus. But everybody acknowledges the fact that John is unique, even from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three are commonly referred to by scholars as the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic meaning a common view of things. And that is true. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a common view of things. Now, they each have a particular focus. For example, Matthew, in his gospel, really intends to show Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Matthew is the most Jewish, scholars believe, of all of the gospels. And you can see that. It's woven all throughout the narrative. When you take a look at Mark, Mark simply wants to show Jesus Christ as the servant of God, as the one who came not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve, the servant of God. And when you look at Luke's version, it becomes clear he is emphasizing, yes, the divinity of Christ, but there's a special emphasis on the humanity of Christ, Jesus' healing ministries, for example. But when you get to John, you have something very, very different. Very, very different. And everybody acknowledges that fact. You can see it just at first glance. There are certain things in John that are missing out of the others. Now, let me just say something about biblical studies today and Matthew, Mark, Luke, the, the synoptics. It is believed that Mark is the oldest of the Gospels and that Matthew and Luke borrow a great deal of their information from Mark, who was an early source. But we acknowledge the fact that there are some things that are in Matthew and Luke that are not in Mark. So where did they get their information? Scholars often refer to what is known as Q. You'll hear Q. Q comes from the German. It means Kel. It simply means source. The belief is that Matthew and Luke have a common source that Mark does not have, but they also draw from Mark. So they're called synoptics because they all have a common source. They all, you know, the tradition goes back to an eyewitness here or there. With John, we have something, as I said, very different. It doesn't appear to be the same source that the other three have. And there are certain things that are completely omitted, things that we would expect to find in any gospel and are there in the others but are not there in John. For example, in John there is no account of Christ's birth. So if we only had John's gospel as opposed to the other three, we wouldn't know anything about Bethlehem necessarily. We wouldn't know anything about the shepherds. These familiar stories that we heard just a few years ago, they would be absent completely from the narrative. Now, of course, John knows that Jesus was born, but he doesn't seem to be particularly interested in the stories of Jesus' birth, of the shepherds, of the wise men, of Mary and Joseph and the journey to Bethlehem. It just seems to be absolutely absent. Now, it's absent, I should say, from Mark's gospel as well. But it is there in Matthew and Luke. There's no account, for example, of the Lord's baptism. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention 
John prominently. And John does appear here at the beginning of the Gospel of John, but there's no account of the baptism, although John presupposes the event. And that was a significant event. Mark begins his gospel with the baptism of Jesus. Matthew and Luke go back and talk about genealogies. They talk about family history. They talk about the birth in Bethlehem. But Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. Why? Because as far as he is concerned, that's where the rubber hits the road. And it is true. In the other two, you'll notice that Jesus is born, and then he sort of disappears. There's there's 30 years of silence until all of a sudden he appears on the scene. Not even recorded in John. If we only had John, we wouldn't have Holy Communion. Because the account of the institution of the Lord's Supper is not in the Gospel of John. Now, wouldn't you expect that that would be there? But it's not. There's no account of the ascension of our Lord. There's the account of the resurrection, and the Gospel basically ends with that. But no account of the, resur- of the ascension, of Jesus returning to the Father. And perhaps most surprising of all, The Gospel of John contains no parables. Now, when you think about Jesus as a teacher, one of the devices that he used so frequently in the other Gospels is these little stories, these pithy little stories that he would tell that are designed to make a profound statement. They're simple, but they're by no means simplistic. They cut right to the heart, and yet there are no parables in the Gospel of John. So you can begin to understand that, yes, it's a tender gospel, as Luther described it. Let not your hearts be troubled. But it is certainly unique, as Luther said, omitting another number of things that the other gospels contain. But it not only omits certain things, it contains some things that the other gospels do not. For example, it's only in John that we learn about an early ministry of Jesus in Judea. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you come away with the impression that Jesus began his ministry in the northern part of Israel, which was Galilee. If you want to understand the geography of ancient Palestine, it's pretty easy. The northern part of Israel was known as Galilee. The southern portion in and around Jerusalem and beyond was known as Judea. And then there was a swath of land between Galilee and between Judea, which was known as Samaria. Now, if you read the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get the impression that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. But if you read the Gospel of John, what you actually discover is that no, he didn't. He actually started his ministry, as we might expect, as the Jewish Messiah in Jerusalem. But almost immediately, he ran afoul of the Jewish religious leaders the scribes and the Pharisees, and as a consequence of that, retreated to Galilee, where he became wildly popular. That's where you have those huge crowds of 5,000 following Jesus. That's where you find the people so ecstatic about what he had come to do, his healing ministry and so forth, that they wanted to forcibly make him the king. But you only begin to understand that context when you realize that Jesus had actually fled for his life from Judea In the south. That's not recorded in the other Gospels, but you get it from John. Furthermore, it's because of John that we know the duration of Jesus' ministry. We know that Jesus' ministry was three years. If you have only the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would come away with the impression that Jesus packed a whole lot of time and energy into one year. 
Well, what is interesting is that John's gospel mentions three Passovers, which tells us that there were actually three years of ministry. But you would not know that from reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's only in the Gospel of John that you hear about today's Gospel lesson. Today's Gospel lesson, which Bill Christian is going to be preaching on, is Jesus' first miracle. Now, if you've been to a wedding, this is mentioned in the wedding service, the marriage ceremony. And Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee where he turned water into wine. See, we think that was a Jewish holiday. It was actually an Episcopalian or Anglican holiday because he turned water into wine, and we know that's what he would do there in that kind of a situation. But this account of the first miracle of Jesus is only recorded there in the Gospel of John. And it was a somewhat public miracle. So the first miracle is only recorded in the Gospel of John. Only in the Gospel of John are we told about Nicodemus, that famous Pharisee who came by night, that he was intrigued by Jesus. All of the other Pharisees were opposed to Jesus, but Nicodemus came and he said what? We know that you are a man who's been sent from God because nobody could do the things that you were doing unless God were with him. And that's when Jesus speaks those extraordinary words. He said, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Only in the Gospel of John do we encounter Nicodemus. Nicodemus there, and Nicodemus at the end, at the time of Jesus' burial with Joseph of Arimathea. Only in the Gospel of John do we encounter the woman of Samaria. Remember that woman who was out there by the well, and Jesus encountered her. The disciples had gone off to find some food, and Jesus is sitting there by the well, and along comes this woman around the bend. She's got a, a container ready to collect water. It's the middle of the day. That was unusual. Women normally collected all of the water at the very beginning of the day, so it was there. It was supplied for their tours throughout the day. But this woman is coming in the middle of the day, and Jesus knows why. It's because she didn't want to gather with all of the other women when they were sitting there gossiping. Because they were gossiping about her. She was the topic of discussion, and so she came in the middle of the day and Jesus asks her for a drink, and she turns to him, and she says, why are you, a Jewish man, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And Jesus said, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking me for a drink. And she says, I don't know what you're talking about, but you don't even have anything to draw water with. And Jesus said, whoever comes to me will find that there is a well of water springing up to eternal life. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, that's right. Forgot about that. You've had... Several husbands. <laughs> and the man you're living with now, he's not even your husband. And the woman says, sir, I can see you're a prophet. That wonderful passage. It's a beautiful thing. And this woman who is notorious eventually becomes an evangelist. And her whole community is converted to the faith as a consequence of what Jesus did with her. It's not recorded anywhere else but in John. Only in John do we encounter the raising of Lazarus? Now, the raising of Lazarus is significant for a number of reasons, not simply because it tells that Jesus can raise somebody from the dead. Actually, the raising of Lazarus was the third person that Jesus had raised from the dead. He had raised other people from the dead as well. Jairus' daughter, the little girl who had died, the widow of Nain's son. Lazarus was the last person. Why is the raising of Lazarus really significant? 
It's because the raising of Lazarus sets the tone for Palm Sunday. Think about this for just a moment. Jesus' ministry, as I said in Galilee, had been wildly successful. People were just ecstatic about it. But Jesus wanted to impress upon them that it wasn't so much the miracles as it was the message that really mattered. In fact, on one occasion, uh, Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law in the house. And early in the morning, the disciples went out to find him because the people had shown up, the, the whole community had heard about this, and so everybody had shown up at the door with all their sick and their lame and all of these people that wanted to be healed, and Jesus was nowhere to be found. And he was out praying by himself. And I love this account. Peter goes out and he says, What are you doing here? Translate, this is no time for prayer. Get on with the work. And Jesus replies, Yes, let us go to the other towns also that I may preach there also because that is why I've come. It wasn't about the miracles. The miracles were simply to bear testimony to the man and his message. That's what Jesus had come to proclaim. He'd come to proclaim a message and it was a message that had eternal life. And so those people were ecstatic up there in Galilee. They, they were following him in droves. But you'll notice that as his ministry goes along, those huge crowds that had followed him initially begin to drop off, and they drop off specifically because of the teaching. On one occasion, Jesus says, you've come to me because you had your fill of the fish and the loaves. But long for that bread which does not decay. That's when he said, I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. And we're told that many of the people said, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? They didn't mean hard to understand. They said, we don't like what you're saying. You're telling us that you've got what we need. You're the true bread which satisfies. And we're told that many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. So when you get to about the week before Palm Sunday, the crowds that have been 5,000 up there in Galilee, now that Jesus has gone back down to Jerusalem, down toward Judea, there's only a handful of people following him. Human nature is fickle, isn't it? You can be the, the flavor of the month today, and you're out of favor the next month. That's the way it was for Jesus. But did you ever notice, strange as it may seem, on Palm Sunday, all of a sudden, the crowds are back. Did you ever notice that? You read through the gospel accounts, the crowds have dissipated, nobody's following him anymore, just a few hardliners, but, but everybody else is, has gone away, and then all of a sudden, on Palm Sunday, there's pandemonium. They're tearing the palm branches from the trees. They're taking off their cloaks. They're strewing them in front of the donkey as he comes in, shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Romans think there's going to be an uprising. What accounts for that? Only one thing, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which the Gospel of John tells us took place immediately before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as I said, it was the third time Jesus had raised somebody from the dead, but it was the most public. When he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, there was only the girl's parents and a couple of his disciples there. He put everybody else out of the room. And furthermore, she'd only been dead, what? A short while. Body probably hadn't even cooled by this point. When he raised the widow of Nain's son, it was more dramatic 
because it was the same day. Incidentally, Jews in those days, when you died, buried you on the day you died. <laughs> okay? No Irish wake for them. You're going to be buried on the day that you died, and it normally had to be done before sunset. So you had to be buried immediately. So the boy had died. She's a widow. This is her only child. Jesus sees this funeral cortege making its way out of the city, and he stops, and he touches the boy, and he raises him to life. Now, that's a little more dramatic because there were more people there, but she was a widow. It would have been a small gathering. But the raising of Lazarus was a very public thing. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were notable figures. They lived in Bethany. It was just outside of Jerusalem. Just a few miles. It's actually a suburb today of Jerusalem. And we're told that when Lazarus died, many people from Jerusalem had come out to comfort the sisters in the loss of their brother. They call for Jesus, saying he's sick. Jesus tarries and says this will not end in death. When they show up, he's dead. And not only is he dead, but he's been in the grave, what? Four days. So that the body has started to decompose. When Jesus says, roll back the stone, Martha responds, Lord, we can't do that. There'll be an odor. The old King James Version put it, he stinketh. And, and, if you, and if you go to Bethany today, it's wonderful. If you go to Bethany today, there is this magnificent church there at the tomb of Lazarus. It's one of my favorite places to go. It's on the West Bank, so sometimes the guides don't like to take you there. I've been there many times. I'll never forget. You have to access the tomb from up the hill. So there's a church right there, and there's the entrance to the tomb, but that's all been bricked up. And there are all these statues and so forth there. So if you're going to access the tomb of Lazarus, you have to actually go up the hill and you access it from above and you go down all these stairs and when you get to the tomb, you're at the back of the tomb where they have drilled a hole and you actually have to crawl through. If you're claustrophobic, you'll never make it. I'm just going to tell you. You'll be in there with him. But you have to crawl through this tiny hole and all of a sudden you're in this cavernous room and you realize that's where it took place. That's where the miracle took place, behind the stone. It's a marvelous place. But in the church, there's this frieze that runs the whole way around. And it tells the story of the raising of Lazarus. And my favorite section of it shows Jesus pointing to the tomb. The stone has been rolled away. And there's a man standing there pointing at Lazarus and holding his nose. But Jesus raises him. And it wasn't done in secret. All these people from Jerusalem had seen it. They were stunned by it. And they'd all come from Jerusalem, so what do you think they did when they went back to Jerusalem? Told everybody about it. And so when Jesus then sets his face toward Jerusalem, just a day or two later, heading to Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, which everyone knew was symbolic of the fact that a Messiah had come, there's pandemonium. He's, he raises people from the dead for Pete's sakes. People who've been decomposing for four days. This is the man. And we only know that because of John. You see how unique this gospel is. You see how powerful this gospel is. How it helps us to put everything in perspective. But because John is such an extraordinary and unique gospel... It has, more than any of the others, been the subject of intense scrutiny by the higher critics. 
Higher criticism is basically the study of the backstory or the life setting. The Germans describe this as the Sitzumleben, the life setting or the context in which the ancient manuscript came into existence. And the higher critics have been very, very intense in their scrutiny of John's gospel. In fact, they have gone so far as to say, uh, at least until fairly recently, that the Gospel of John could not have been written by an eyewitness to the accounts themselves, even though the author purports to be an eyewitness. In fact, they have argued that the Gospel of John was probably written 150 to 200 years after the events it describes, which means it could not have been written by John the Apostle, or for that matter, any of the Apostles. They also argue that there are these stark contrasts in the Gospel of John that you don't see anywhere else, which are the evidence of Greek influence. That's what the word Hellenism means, Greek influence. And in particular, one subset of Greek philosophical thought, Gnosticism, Gnosis, knowledge. Basically, what they say is the Gospel of John talks in, in, in these stark contrasts between things like light and darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never be in darkness. It talks about light and dark, earth and heaven. These, these, these contrasts, which really don't appear in most Jewish writings of the time period, but they certainly appear in later writings in Greek writings. The Gnostics in particular use that kind of stark contrast. And so many have argued what you have in the Gospel of John is something that is unique and powerful, but it's not an early source. It's not trustworthy. And that was the belief of many people right up until about the 1950s. And then everything began to change. Everything began to change. What changed? Well, a number of things changed. First of all, we discovered a number of new ancient manuscripts. That's one of the reasons why I use the English Standard Version. It's because it's based upon the most ancient manuscripts. At one point, until about the 1950s, the oldest manuscripts that we have dated to about 325 to 340. Oldest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John. Now, mind you, that is still very close to the event as far as ancient scholars are concerned. Now, if you're a 19th century historian, that's way after the event. But if you're an ancient scholar, that's very close to the event, as a matter of fact. In fact, the most reliable manuscripts that we have of Homer's writing date to 2,000 years after Homer. So we are still very early on, but it is a considerable length of time after the death of the apostles. But now, many scholars believe that the latest even the most skeptical scholars, the latest that the Gospel of John could date to is 125 A.D. And many believe that it's much closer. A large number of scholars are now arguing that the Gospel of John had to have been written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Well, if Jesus died in 33 and this was written before 70 A.D., we are right on top of the events themselves. What accounts for the change? Two things in particular. First of all, there have been some some new manuscripts that have been discovered. I'll, I'll tell you about one of them, and then we'll go on to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Just one of these. Back in about 1965, 
some Egyptologists were doing some archaeology in and around Cairo, and they discovered a mummy. Well, that's not uncommon, of course, in Egypt. You find mummies all the time because that was the common form of burial. But they found this one mummy, and in the wrappings of the mummy, there were scraps of parchment. And when they pulled out the parchment, they noticed that it was written in Greek, and they noticed this mummy, incidentally, uh, this person had died, they believed, early on in the second century A.D., very early on, just right over the mark. And they find the scraps in this mummy of a piece of parchment written in Greek, and they studied it, and they noticed that it was familiar. It was a portion of the Gospel of John. Now, here's what's fascinating. This is right at the dawn of the second century. When most scholars have been saying that the Gospel of John was written at the end of the second century, now we're here a hundred years earlier, at least, at the very dawn of the second century. And we've got the scraps of a parchment. Now, parchment were precious in those days. So what happened? And we know that the Gospel of John had to come not from Egypt, but from somewhere north of that. So this piece of parchment had made its way from the north, the whole way down the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt, had been read, had been used, had fallen into disrepair, just fallen into fragments, and it found its way into the wrappings of this mummy and all by the second century A.D., which immediately got people thinking, my goodness, this, this, this book must date to much earlier than that. And here was the second discovery that was made, and that's the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's one you're probably more familiar with. Happened in 1947 in an area just outside of Jerusalem called Qumran, near the Dead Sea. Um, it was uh, the place where John the Baptist really began his ministry, Qumran. Some of you perhaps have been to Qumran. The last time I took a trip uh, with St. Philip's, unfortunately, we did not get to Qumran. So the next time we go, uh, you'll want to go to Qumran because it's a remarkable place. How the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered is pretty extraordinary. There was a young boy. He was a shepherd boy. He was down there keeping his flocks, mostly goats, and uh, doing what little boys sometimes do, and that is throw stones. And there are a lot of caves in the area. It's a very dry area. Hardly ever rains, except at one point in the year. So it's a very low point. It's the lowest point on Earth, the Dead Sea. So it, it's very dry. He sees these caves up there on the hillside, and he takes some rocks, and he's throwing them up there into the cave. You know, he's bored out of his mind. He's throwing them up, and all of a sudden, he hears something crash, like glass. Turns out it's pottery. So he climbs up there, and what he discovers is the largest cache of ancient manuscripts the world had ever known. The Dead Sea Scrolls have been discovered. And uh, ever since, they continue to find these scrolls in that area. Even today, just a few years ago, they found some more. Now, the important thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls, as far as we're concerned, they really don't have anything to do with the New Testament. There are no New Testament writings there. So if you think you're going to read Dan Brown and discover something, it's this whole new sort of Christianity, nah, it doesn't happen. That's not what it's about. But there are some fragments of Old Testament. In fact, the oldest copy of the book of Isaiah was discovered. And everybody wanted to see how close would it be to our modern translations, almost word for word. Now, we don't have time to talk about how they translated. That's a whole subject in and of itself, but very accurate. But the important thing 
The important thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls, as far as New Testament studies and the Gospel of John is concerned, is what they discovered was a whole community of nonconformist Jews who lived in the first century at the time of Jesus, just outside of Jerusalem, who used all of that Greek philosophical language that everybody thought didn't come in until decades later. All of the contrast between light and dark, heaven and earth, even certain terms that appear in the Gospel of John, like the term logos. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Those things were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, what that told scholars is that there was a community of Jews just outside of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus employing precisely the same kind of language that the Gospel of John employed. And it did not appear on the scene decades or generations after the fact. Here's the third thing that's important about the Gospel of John. John's knowledge of ancient Palestine. John has an intimate knowledge of ancient Palestine. He mentions a number of places that scholars didn't believe actually existed at the time. I'm only going to give you an example of one. One was the Pool of Bethesda. You know the story. Uh, Jesus came upon this pool. There were people there. It was probably built over some sort of artesian spring. And what would happen is the water would bubble up and everybody believed that an angel was stirring the water and that if you could get into the water first, you would be healed. But there was this man who'd been shoved to the back of the crowd. He could never get to the water. Jesus comes along and asks him a question. Do you want to be made well? And he says, yes, but I can never get into the water. And you know the story, Jesus heals him. Now what is interesting is that John describes that event taking place at a pool called Bethesda, which had five covered colonnades, five porches. Now, because that sounded like a pentagon, scholars doubted that it existed. There had never been a pentagon-shaped pool discovered in ancient Palestine. The Jews, in particular, and the Romans didn't build pentagons. And so many people argued that this is, just, this is another example of John exaggerating or, or dreaming up something. Well, about 1970, I think it was, about 50 to 75 feet below the surface of modern-day Jerusalem. Right outside what was known as the Beautiful Gate, the main entrance into the temple complex, archaeologists discovered a pool. A pool that was in the shape of a rectangle and had four covered colonnades around it. Now, of course, the one in the Gospel of John was supposed to have five covered colonnades. True enough. But this pool was unique. It had four covered colonnades, and then it had a bridge across the center with a colonnade. And if you go there today, you can still see the pool. That's the archaeological work that is still ongoing. It's right outside of St. Anne's Church. It's called St. Anne's Pool. Whenever we go to the Holy Land today, we always have a teaching there and a healing service because that's where Jesus healed the man. But everybody doubted the existence of such a pool. Now we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that John got it exactly right. So the whole tenor of scholarship has changed dramatically. 
There are even some scholars that argue that John perhaps is not the latest of the Gospels. It may be, this is a minority view, but there are some who hold to it, that John is the earliest of the Gospels because it is so unique. Here's how Bishop John A.T. Robinson, a renowned New Testament scholar, put it. He said, I detect a growing readiness to recognize that the historical background of John's Gospel is not to be sought at the end of the first century or the beginning of the second in Ephesus or Alexandria among the Gnostics and Greeks. Rather, there is no compelling need to let our gaze wander very far, either in space and time, beyond a fairly limited area of southern Palestine in the fairly limited interval between the crucifixion and the fall of Jerusalem. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, okay, this is all very interesting, but why in the world are you telling us this? This is supposed to be a spiritual book. Why all of this background? Why of all of this history? Why of all this archaeology? I'll tell you why. John not only wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote four other books in the New Testament. Three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. But in his first epistle of John, his first book, he writes these words. Listen carefully. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. That's why it's important. The Christian faith, my friends, is not credulity. It's not hope against hope. Christian faith is based upon objective facts. And that's what John is saying. What I am recording for you are the things that I have seen, I have touched, I have heard with my own ears, and I am recording these things so that you can have fellowship with us and our fellowship with this God. And you get to the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. He said, Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book, but these have been recorded so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why we are studying the Gospel of John. We need to understand that this is a trustworthy account. And having established that, we then study it so that we may come to know him who John testifies to. We may come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. So next week, bring your Bibles and we'll jump right into it, the study of this extraordinary gospel of John. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this unique, tender, genuine gospel. We pray, Lord, that as we come, we would come with open minds and humble hearts, that we might receive it, 
and that we might swallow it whole, that it may begin to work in us the power of God's grace, that we may come to know the one who is the subject of this book, the subject of all life, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.